18 years. Just imagine, 18 years. That's a long time to see mostly the ground beneath you. That's the length of time from birth to freshman year of college for most folks. All of that time to get acquainted with the distinctive view of your feet shuffling awkwardly, uncertainly through the world. Perhaps if she turns her head just right, she can catch a quick glimpse of blue sky in her peripheral vision. A blur of the face of a loved one as he speaks. A child playing, water lapping on the seashore. But those are always brief moments for her. And even then, her perspective was skewed sideways. Never complete, never whole. For 18 years... Her vision was narrowed, her movements constricted. The only grace of it, perhaps, was that she didn't have to see the sidelong glances, the looks of revulsion, or worse yet, pity. How many trips on the Sabbath had she made to worship? How many trips to that synagogue She could hear the speakers, but rarely could she see them. She could imagine the colors of the worship space, but rarely take them in fully. She could listen to the reading from the scroll of the Torah, the law, but she could rarely behold the scroll itself with its silver crown and breastplate, distinctive parchment like ripples on a lake with sacred words in black Hebrew lettering, words of life. Always her view was partial and incomplete. Eighteen years. A long, long time. There was an elder in the church I served when I was in college in a little in Waverly, Tennessee. His name was Joe Basquette. He's long since died, but I remember him vividly. The church building we worshiped in was constructed in 1880. It was a suburb of Waverly. Uh, It was five miles to the north in the middle of nowhere. Long before accessibility for persons with disabilities or wheelchairs was even considered. So every Sunday, every Sunday, regardless of the weather, Joe pulled up to the circular gravel drive of the church in his van. He helped his wife from the back seat into the wheelchair, wheeled her through the gravel and up a small hill to the rarely used side entrance to the church sanctuary. There were fewer steps there, five steps. And a man named Vester Fortner was always standing there waiting for Joe at the door. And Vester held the handles on the back of the chair. And Joe grabbed the bars at the edges, at the legs. And they rolled and lifted his wife backward up the steps, one step at a time. There were no cutout spots in the rows of pews for 
her to be in her wheelchair with easy access. So Joe would sit on the end of the pew in the very back of the sanctuary and she would sit in her wheelchair beside him in the center aisle, leaving just enough room for folks to squeeze by on their way in. Most of them stopping to say hello. And at the end of the service, the pattern repeated itself in reverse. He did this for years and years. And I hate to admit it, my college-aged mind could never fully understand at that time how hard that must have been for them. Until a time several years ago when our daughter, some of you may remember she had surgery on both of her feet and she couldn't put weight on them for several weeks. And when we brought her home from the surgery, I tried pulling her up the two steps into our front door and almost tossed her into the yard. I thought, this is hard. And I watched and tried to aid her after failing to convince her to set up a room downstairs, up the 15 steps and a landing upstairs in our home. And she finally just had to use her hands and go on her backside one step at a time until she got to the top and she crawled the rest of the way to her room. And I remember thinking, boy, I'm glad this is only a few weeks. Imagine 18 years. Imagine a lifetime. And then imagine a voice calling you over and a hand touching the back of your head and something in the touch shocks you into the awareness of a presence and suddenly muscles you had not used in 18 years are contracting, trying to move your back and your spine which seemed permanently beneath the weight of the world straightens. Imagine that. And then you look into his eyes. And when was the last time you looked someone in the eyes? And the world that was constricted and narrow is now open before you, abundant and generous. Your perspective is radically altered and widened. You see the clouds now in the blue sky. You see the unique contours of each person's face. You see everything right side you see the scroll there now with its ancient promises open before you, its silver crown gleaming in the light. And you do all you know to do in a moment like that. You know all that can be done in this liminal moment when heaven touches earth, when God moves, you praise God from whom all blessings flow. It's the Sabbath day, after all. And doxology and praise is flowing from her mouth as she looks up and down, left and right. She's speaking that most basic prayer, the prayer that begins all prayer, the prayer that lies at the heart of the Sabbath. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. She's invisible most of the time, easy to overlook, Literally. 
The synagogue leader may not even know what she looks like, certainly not what she looks like upright and singing. The only thing he ever saw, if he saw her at all, was the top of her head leading the way. But now he hears her praise, he sees her face, he sees this magnificent act of liberation and healing. And what does he do? He does not address her. He addresses the crowd. He accuses her indirectly of coming to the synagogue to be healed on the Sabbath. When you notice, the text says nothing of the sort. She has come to the synagogue to worship. She doesn't notice Jesus. How could she? Bent as she was. Jesus notices her. She doesn't ask to be healed. Jesus heals her in an act of free grace. But the synagogue leader is not addressing her, and he's not addressing Jesus, but he means for her to hear what he has to say. There are six days, he says, in that authoritative voice. There are six days on which work ought to be done Come on those days and be cured, and not on the Sabbath day. Now, it would be easy for us at this moment to do what Christians throughout the generations have done, which is to climb up on our seat of judgment and proclaim that the ruler is wearing the black hat in this instance. He's the bad guy. He's the one who just doesn't get it. He's the one elevating the law above grace. But the truth is that the Sabbath was and is a central tenet of the Jewish faith. And now the Christian faith as well. It's still important to set aside one day of the week in which we cease from work, we cease from producing, we cease from all the efforts to secure ourselves. One day when we remember by ceasing from our work that we are not God, that we are created. And that the world can get along just fine without us, without our sweat and toil and effort. The ruler of the synagogue, to the extent he was lifting up the importance of Sabbath, was not doing a bad thing. We just emphasized this a few weeks ago, going through the Ten Commandments, that fifth commandment, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy a most important commandment, that leader is not doing anything wrong by emphasizing its importance. And yet, Jesus calls him a hypocrite just the same. And this word that we translate hypocrite is a distinctive Greek word in Luke's gospel. It is always the charge Jesus levels in this gospel at those who are blind to the real meaning of things, who cannot perceive their own weaknesses and cannot discern the present evidence of God's rule, God's work. And that evidence is all around in Jesus. Wherever Jesus goes in Luke's gospel, people are unbound from their diseases, unbound from the social norms that create insiders and outsiders, unbound from 
these harsh interpretations of religious practices that keep women like this one bent and broken when God wants them to be free. And so Jesus, as he so often does with a very simple analogy that everyone in the crowd immediately understands, puts this ruler to shame. You allow, don't you, for your animal to be untied and led to water on the Sabbath? Yet you would keep this daughter of Abraham bound on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a gift to human beings. We were, Sabbath was, was made for us to set us free, was it not? This is what happens when God shows up. This is what happens. People who are bowed down stand up straight. When that happens, no matter what day of the week it is, Sabbath has arrived. God's kingdom has come to earth as it is in heaven. And the only appropriate response is doxology, praise. This is ultimately the hypocrisy of the leader in the synagogue, and it's all too often our own hypocrisy as well. He fails to see that the true meaning of the Sabbath is the meaning it has held all along. We stop working, we rest as an acknowledgement of what? That the world is not sustained by our efforts, but by God's grace. We make room in our homes and in our lives to feel that grace, to rest in it, to be empowered by it, to be released back into the world with a new perspective. This woman bent for 18 long years is seen, really seen, in a moment of sheer grace. No one is working in her but God. That is Sabbath rest. That is Sabbath justice, pure and true. So when she stands up straight, she praises. And she left that synagogue on the Sabbath in a unique position to see others who were also weighted down, bent beneath heavy burdens, perspectives narrowed and constricted, longing for healing. She left with this wondrous opportunity to be an agent of God's Sabbath to other people. We are all of us, at one time or another, going to be bent down. And we are all of us at one time or another, by God's grace, going to be lifted up. So that when we are lifted up, we might lift up others. And when we are bent down, we might receive the grace that comes from outside ourselves. Whether it's as far away as Lebanon in the Middle East, or as close as Bowling Green, or under our own roof in our own homes... We're in this house of God. We can give Sabbath grace and we can receive Sabbath grace. And so this week, as you go about your week, I invite you to look for the bent ones. The ones who need that grace, 
the ones who are crying out for justice or for love or for compassion. And look also within yourself at those places where you are bent in need of the grace that God gives. And be ready, whether you are in need or see need, to feel that touch and hear those words of liberation. You, my child, are set free. And when we see it, when we feel it, when Sabbath justice rolls down like a mighty stream, let us lift our doxology. Because this is Christ's work. This is Sabbath work. Let it be our work. To the glory of God alone. Amen.